Thanks for listening to the Faith Assembly Podcast. Please join us at 9 and 11 a.m. at the Somerville Campus and 11 a.m. at the North Charleston and Remount Campuses. Thank you. We hope you are blessed through listening. How's everybody doing this morning? Are you good? You feel good? Are you awake? I'm from Phoenix, and I'm, I'm like three hours behind right now, so I think it's like six-something there right now, and uh, I went to bed like at 12.15 last night, but I'm feeling good, and I'm so glad to be with you guys. This is one of my very favorite places to come and speak, and uh, I really consider it such an honor to be involved in, in the lives of some of your leadership. Um, you know, the Bible does say to give honor to, to whom honor is due, and, and I'm so thankful for Pastor Burbacher and Jeannie, can, can you just tell them how much you love them right now? We're just incredible leadership, godly, great examples. And, uh, and also Pastor Jason and Jessica, would you just show them how much you love them as well? Jason and I had a good time uh, reminiscing uh, our old dorm days at CBC last night. Um, we we had a definitely had a great time, and I am if if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you, uh, my name's Jesse Watson, and I have um, a ridiculously gorgeous wife. Her name is Sarah. She can't be here on this trip, but she says hello. And I've got two very good-looking young boys, seven and five. Halen's my oldest. Noble's my youngest. He's five. He's not saved yet, so if you could just be praying for him. Well, I'd like to see that happen while I'm even away on this trip. Uh, he is just a handful, but um, he's amazing. Hey, if you've got a Bible, let's go together to, to God's Word. We're going to go to Genesis. Now, I know that many of you are not quite the biblical scholar that I am, so I'm going to help you out just a little bit. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. It's really easy for you to find. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to look at verse 27. We're going to look at a, a few scriptures this morning. While you're going there, Genesis chapter 25... Um, just want to let you know that uh, I have a couple of resources available. They're going to be out front. Um, I brought a different one than I did last year. Um, and it's got some, some really inspiring messages uh, on, this, on this. And I, this is what I believe. Every message I preach, God has first preached it to me. I have a conviction to only preach what God has preached to me or what God has taken me through. And I preach with a conviction because he has changed me through whatever it is. And there's four messages on this resource. It's called The Goods 2. There's a couple of goods, one out there. Um, pick that up. It's $20 for that. If you know a young person, if you feel like a young person, or if you are a young person, grab that. And then I've also got a single resource. It's one I take everywhere I go. We're going to make more copies because I don't have very many copies out there. Um, but it's called What to Say to a Gay Friend. And the reason why I preach this message is because what I found in youth ministry is more times than not, our young people and, and really our church don't have an accurate response to give to the people in their life that are struggling with their sexual identity. I believe that this is a message that can inspire our Christian young people with words to say, how to pray for their friends, and, and how to minister to them in a godly way. And so the singles of this is just $5. We're going to have more this week, and they will be for sale at the awakening. So, well, are you at Genesis chapter 25? You there? If you have it, say, oh yeah. 
All right, I'm going to read this to you, and then we're just going to let it go. But I need some, some energy, so I feel free, you know, to, to, to shout at me. You can, you can say amen. You can say I concur. I agree. I like that. Preach it, white boy. Whatever you want to say. <laughs> I am okay with that. All right, let's read this together. Genesis chapter 25, verse 27. It says this, The boys grew up. And Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was a quiet man staying among the tents. Jacob was a domestic engineer, as they might say. Verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and he drank, and then he got up and he left. So Esau despised his birthright. I'm going to flip real quick to Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 1 to you, and then we're going to get started. It says this in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught the disciples. We're going to connect those dots in just a few minutes. But before we do, I want to speak to you this morning from the subject, a hungry need is a dangerous need. A hungry need is a dangerous need. I hope you're taking notes this morning. Statistics show that you have a far greater chance of staying out of hell if you take notes. A hungry need is a dangerous need. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I thank you that your presence is in this place. I thank you, God, for the freedom that we have to come together as a church and worship you. Lord, we don't take that for granted, realizing, God, that lots of countries do not have this freedom. And so, God, we get to be here today. God, we choose to learn from your word. I pray, Lord, that you would anoint this message. I pray, God, that you would use these words, God, to pierce our hearts and to change us and to help us to become more and more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you know, seventh grade really wasn't a good year for me. Seventh grade wasn't a a good year for me. You see, in seventh grade, I came in third place in my school spelling bee. The guy that came in first place took my first girlfriend, Lori Wilson. Seventh grade just wasn't a, a good year for me. Matter of fact, he's a neurosurgeon now. I hope Lori's had a good life. I'm not bitter, Lori. Seventh grade just really wasn't a good year for me. Seventh grade, I had a case of eternal bedhead in seventh grade. It didn't matter how much water or gel I used. It was as if I had slept in a tornado. My hair was crazy every day. Seventh grade just wasn't a good year for me, really. You know, seventh grade, my voice had not changed yet. And they called me Squeak. It hurts that you laugh at that. It really does. And see, some of you, you, you don't realize the, the pain that that causes a seventh grade boy. Because see, some of you, you athletes, you already had facial hair in seventh grade. And so did some of the guys. 
I come in peace. I just speak the truth. I just speak the truth. Seventh grade was not really a good year for me. I was the shortest kid in my school, and so they called me Pipsqueak. It was just not a good year. You see, I had these glasses in seventh grade. The lenses on them were so thick that if I had my back to the sun, the rays of the sun would shine through my lens and it could start a small brush fire. I had to walk like this just so I didn't start a forest fire. This seventh grade. I just didn't have a good year in seventh grade. Now, there was one redeeming factor about seventh grade that made seventh grade worth it. And it happened every single Tuesday in seventh grade. And see, I would look forward to Tuesdays because of this special treat that I would get to have every single week. And, and it was almost like this, this little slice of heaven, this, this, just this piece of perfection on my Tuesdays. And so every Tuesday at about 10 o'clock, the hallways would fill with this, I mean, this smell of just sugary goodness. And all of a sudden, this lady, she was an angel. I mean, she would just go down the halls, pushing this cart full of Krispy Kreme donuts. Each donut has 350 calories in it, by the way. Krispy Kreme donuts, it was $2 for a dozen. Now it's like $10 for a dozen. And so I thought, you know, if it's $2 for a dozen, why not buy two? So I'd get two dozen boxes of Krispy Kreme donuts every single Tuesday. And I would start eating these Krispy Kreme donuts. And my goal was to eat a dozen of these things before lunch. It's in seventh grade. Seventh graders can do that kind of thing. So I'd eat, you know, two just as fast as I could. And then I'd get to three. And then I'd kind of start slowing down on four. And then by the time I had my fifth donut, all of a sudden, I just felt this bomb that was about to explode in my stomach this sugar bomb, and I was probably wired and bouncing off the walls. But I can remember that by my sixth donut, I didn't want to see another donut. I couldn't even bear to look at it or smell it until next Tuesday. But the other box, the other dozen, I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't even eat. So I would always end up just giving another box away. And it was like, have I not learned my lesson by now? But what I realized then, and I've carried with it to this point in my life, is that a hungry need is a dangerous need. You see, we've all got these needs. We've all got different needs, and and we are hungry. We're driven towards these needs. But the truth is, is that the enemy understands what your hungry needs are. And he will do everything that he can to exploit your hungry need. He will do whatever he can to exploit your weakness, what you're weak for. And here's what I've discovered about needs, because we have to be careful, because when we get in our mind something that we want, we do anything we can to make sure that we get that. And if we continue to think about it, if we continue to desire it, eventually nothing will stop us until we get that. It could be good or bad. But you see, the inclination for humanity is driven towards sinfulness. We were created sinful. 
In our original state, before we became Christians, we were sinful. And so our natural inclination is to move or gravitate towards disobeying God. You can see it in the lives of your children. I mean, my five-year-old. Someone asked me the other day, are you able to have tough conversations with people? I said, absolutely. I do every day with my five-year-old. I can do that. But when I tell him no, it's like it means yes. Noble, you cannot go into the refrigerator on your own and get something to eat or drink. And what does he do within five seconds of me telling him that? He goes into the refrigerator. It's, we have this natural inclination to disobey. Think about Adam and Eve, the very first humans on earth. They walked with God. They talked with God. They knew God in a way that we don't even know God. And still, their natural inclination was to go against what God said not to do. Moses, one of the heroes of the faith, killed a man just because of his rage, because he was angry. Noah, the one man that God looked out over the entire earth and said, you are the only one righteous enough for me to spare as I flood this earth. And I'm going to use you to start over humanity. I'm going to use you. Soon as Noah completes his mission, what does he do? He goes into his tent and he gets drunk. We have this natural inclination towards sin, towards Filling the needs that we're really hungry for. David, the Bible says a man after God's own heart. One of the greatest kings, if not the greatest king of Israel, committed adultery. This man loved God, but his natural inclination was to disobey God. Paul, writer of two-thirds of the New Testament said these very words. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. It's a natural inclination that we have. And so we've got to be aware of what we're hungry for, the needs in our life, because we will sometimes move heaven and earth to satisfy those urges. And God says, I've got this beautiful plan for you. You keep pursuing me. You keep coming after me. But the enemy knows that. The enemy understands that. And his determination is to set obstacles in our pathway so we don't reach what God wants us to experience. A hungry need is a dangerous need. This is illustrated in the story this morning. Two young men by the name of Jacob and Esau. I want to take us through this passage because I believe it has some implications for you and I, especially when it comes to having a hungry need. Bible says this. I, I love how this story unfolds because the Bible says that Esau was famished. That he came in from the open country and he just kind of busts in. I just imagine whenever I, I read a passage, I, the, the story just kind of plays out in my head. And he, he just kind of busts in and startles everybody. And he's out of breath and he's just, he's tired. He's famished and he's looking. Jacob's making stew. The Bible says that, that, that Esau is, is, is famished. And it's important for us to understand that that word famished actually means tired. It means to be weary. And what I've discovered in my own life is that when I'm tired, not just sleepy tired, but when I'm just worn out, 
That's when I typically make the worst decisions and the worst mistakes. Have you noticed that? I can remember when I was a junior in college, it was Christmas break and it was that time that every college student dreads final exams and And I did what most men do. I crammed all night, one night, for my theology test. Side note, don't ever take theology. Just go to your pastors and ask them about it. Don't do that either. But I crammed for for theology all night long. I had my car packed and ready to go and took my theology test at 725 in the morning. Flew through that thing because I just wanted to get home. I had about a five-hour drive and I just wanted to get home for Christmas. I wanted Christmas break to start. And so I hopped in my car and I started driving. and, And I got about three hours into the trip on the highway. Recognize I'm going about 70 miles an hour, put it on cruise control. And the last thing I remember is putting a CD into my CD player. I open my eyes and within six inches of my car is the exit sign for Memphis. That's where I was going. Now, when you're passing exit signs on the side of the road, they don't look that big. But when they're six inches in front of your car, they're huge. I slam on my brakes. I hit the sign. The sign flips over my car, busts out my back windshield. I lose control of the vehicle, start going down the embankment, try to bring it back up, hit another sign, and that throws me into a ditch. No joke, less than 10 feet from a telephone pole. I would have hit the pole had the ditch not been there. I believe that God saved my life that day. But here's what. I made a ridiculous decision by driving five hours on no sleep. And God just showed me something, that when we're tired, when we're weary, that's when we often make our greatest mistakes. And here's Esau. He's he's coming in, and, and and he's tired. He's in this place of weariness, and he's about to make one of the greatest mistakes of his life. But I find in the church that many of us live in a place of weariness. I'd, I'd go to church more, but I'm just tired. And I'd go on Wednesday nights, I'd get involved, I'd, I'd host a small group, but and I, I'm just tired. I work 40 hours a week, and, and I just need to find some, some alone time just so I can rest up, so I can be good on Sunday. And I'd read my Bible more, but the truth is, is I'm just tired. I get into bed at night, and I, I open the Bible, but I just, I'm just tired. I, don't, I, I just don't have the, have the patience to sit there and push through it. And I'd I'd pray more. I'd get up early in the morning and pray and do my devotions. But the truth is, is I'm just kind of tired. I'd serve more in the church, but but the truth is, is I I, I haven't been appreciated like I I wish I would have. Nobody's really recognized the things that I've done, and I'm just kind of weary now. And I'm just kind of not really sure about things. I'm just kind of, just kind of tired. Why are you tired, Esau? The Bible says that Esau was in the open country. That he had been in the open country, working in the open country, and he came back famished. You see, the open country represents the world. The open country has no limits. It has no boundaries. It has no moral boundaries. It's the open country. You can do what you want, when you want, where you want. The prodigal son knew something about the open country. 
You see, the prodigal son, if you remember the story, the prodigal son came to his dad and he said, Dad, I want all of my inheritance now. Basically, he's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Okay? The dad gives him his his inheritance and the prodigal son goes off. The Bible says that he started to live wildly, began to spend all of his inheritance, began to spend it on all kinds of ungodly things. And then he wakes up and where is he? He is in the pig pen. And he's trying to salvage the food that the pigs have already eaten because he's so hungry. He's in the open country. There's no boundaries in the open country. You see, there's this mirage of freedom in the open country that if I can just, you know, get away from the church or if I could just kind of do my own thing or if I could just do this one thing that I'm really hungry for, I'm going to be okay. I won't be restricted anymore. I won't have these expectations on me anymore. I'm just going to go into the open country. But see, the open country forces you into a weary state. Because you're not being revived by the presence of God anymore. And if you find yourself tired, tired of doing good, the Bible says, do not be weary in well-doing. Because sometimes we're doing our very best. We're trying to serve. We're trying to tithe. We're trying to do what God's asking us to do. We're trying to, but we don't see a lot of results. And we're results-oriented people. And when we don't see results, frustration sets in. Discord sets in. And all of a sudden, we start just to pull away. Well, I don't see how I'm really helping here. I'm trying to tithe God, but I don't. I don't see you you helping me. God, are you even there? Do you even know what I'm going through? Do you even, because when I'm praying, I just don't feel you anymore. And so it's very easy for us to slip away from what we know to be right. And we get tired and our minds get tired. We've been doing the right thing for so long. I'm tired of being the good person. I'm tired of being the responsible one. I'm tired of being the one that everyone comes to with all the answers. I'm tired of being not able to go to the parties. I'm tired of being, I'm tired of trying to be the example in worship. I'm just tired. You slip into the open country. And that's all of a sudden where things get cloudy. You are not meant to live in the open country. You're meant to live in the presence of God. The Bible says that Esau was skillful. That he was a skillful hunter. You see, I believe that Esau had come to this point. I'm going to go into the open country. I'm going to use what I'm good at. I can make a, I can provide for myself. I can make a good lifestyle. I'm going to use these, these tools that I have and I'm going to make it. People were probably coming from all over. Esau teaches how you hunt. Teaches how you become such an expert at this. And I'm sure Esau was just doing his thing. I can provide for myself. I can take care of myself. I can do this. I've got this. I don't need any assistance from anybody else. I've got this. See, I know there's some people in my life that just feel like they don't need anybody's help. Maybe they've been wronged by somebody. Maybe somebody's hurt them. And they all of a sudden come up with this mentality. Well, I don't need them anyway. I don't Nobody. Nobody needs to take care of me. I got this on my own. I've got. Listen, you were created to partner with people. We're not created to be lone rangers or mavericks. Esau had settled into this lifestyle where he was just, you know what? I'll just, I'll take care of myself. I'm good at what I do. And that's all I need. 
And this world teaches us in the open country, the world teaches us, if you will work hard, you can provide for your family. If you will do the right things, you'll be able to have a nice cushy job, 2.5 vacations a year. If you do this, you'll make a lot of money. If you, but see, the truth is, is as Christians, it's not about you. It's about Christ who lives in you. It's about surrendering your life to the will of God. And when God says move, you move. When God says go, you go. And I'm telling you, God worked this valuable principle into my life about five years ago. I'd moved out to Phoenix to work at a a different church than Phoenix First. My wife quit her corporate job of 10 years to join me in ministry. Something we had been praying for for many years. Moved out to Phoenix from Kansas City, Missouri, like 2,500 miles, the whole family. Big deal. We we become a part of this church staff. And and over the the next few months, we started to realize that this really wasn't a, a leadership team that we felt like we could be a part of. We were there for seven months. In the sixth month, we bought a brand new house. A month later, we resigned. We had no idea what we were going to do. Thank God in his provision, my wife had a friend call her the very next day and offer her a job. Had no idea what was going on. A job that would provide for our family. But what was I going to do? Immediately, I had three options. I had a a friend that was wanting me, me to be on his teaching team just in the neighborhood right next door. I had a pastor that called and offered me a a full-time youth pastor position about 15 minutes down the road. And then I had an opportunity to volunteer at Phoenix First, 45 minutes down the road. Gas was $3.50 a gallon then. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. When I prayed about it, the Lord began to work a couple of scriptures into my life. Proverbs chapter 3, 5 and 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on what you think or your understanding, but acknowledge him in all of your ways. He will make your path straight. He will make your path straight. It's, it's a promise. And then he began to work Philippians 4, 7 into my life. The peace of God. The peace of God passes all understanding. It comes to guard your heart and your mind. And I felt when I began to pray about those opportunities, the only one that I had a peace about was Phoenix first. But in my humanness, it didn't make any sense to me. There was no job opportunity. They hadn't had a new youth pastor in over 20 years. It was me going to serve, me going to volunteer. There's a principle in God's words that says, plant yourself in the work of God and he will bless you. And I felt a peace about that. Nope, it didn't make any sense to anybody. Within two months, they offered me a position there. God showed me through that time that it's not about what I want. It's not about my will that I have to surrender to what he says. When he says go, you go. When he says do it, you do it. And we have to learn this discipline of just stepping out in faith and trusting God. I believe that there are people in here this morning, God has been talking to you. God has been telling you to go somewhere. God has been telling you to do something. And in your humanness, it doesn't make sense. You can't understand it. 
But I'm here to tell you this morning, when you step out, you will see God's blessing. Because God is already working in a situation. His perspective is different than yours. You may be skillful. You may be good at what you do. But it's not about what you do. It's about God's will for your life. See, Esau, he was in the open country. But Jacob, the Bible says that Jacob stayed among the tents. That Jacob was home. Do you realize that for the life of a believer, home is the presence of God? Your home is to be in the presence of God. Dwelling in his presence. That's where Jacob was faithful, committed. Just sitting, just, he was making the dinner every night. Doesn't seem like a whole lot while while Esau's out killing all the food and while Esau's out, you know, teaching people how to do it and seem like he's doing all the work. Jacob's just being faithful. He's just being committed. He's just being in the presence of God. He's home. Jacob is home. Esau is away from home. And all of a sudden, Esau wakes up, realizes, and I'm I'm famished. I'm tired. Weary. He comes in and he sees Jacob making this food. Are, Are you making stew, Jacob? Yeah, I'm making stew. Is that homemade stew? Well, I didn't go to Walmart for this stew. Yes, homemade. Esau says it looks good. It smells good. I bet it tastes good. Do you realize that the Bible says that sin looks good? It tastes good. And it smells good. It says sin is fun for a season. But death always follows sin. And here's Esau looking at this stew. It looks good. It tastes good. It smells good. Jacob, can I have some of your stew? Jacob, wise and understanding of a good situation to take advantage of, says, sell me your birthright. You sell me your birthright and you can have some of this stew. See, a birthright is significant for you to understand because a birthright represented your future. It represented your inheritance. It represented what you were going to step into. And here's Esau confronted with this seemingly difficult decision. Do I take the immediate, looks like it's fulfilling, Smells good, tastes good, looks good. Do I, do I take that or do I wait for what I'm not really sure? I'm not, I can't necessarily see what's going to happen in the future. I can't really understand what my inheritance is right now. But something caught, he was caught up because he, he was tired, he was weary, he was famished, he had been on the open country. He wasn't thinking straight anymore. He wasn't thinking godly anymore. And he says this, he says, well, he says, I'm about to die anyway. Like, I can't go on not eating anymore. I'm about to die. So, so what good is this birthright to me? What good is my inheritance? What good is my future? You see, Jeremiah 29, 11, God says this, I know the plans that I have for you. 
They're not to harm you, but they're to prosper you and they're to give you a future. They're to give you something great. And I've got this plan. And while you may not be able to see it, I see it and I know it. And it's going to be amazing. I know the plans that I have for you. But Esau doesn't see it. He sees the obstacle to the plan of God for his life. And he's so focused on this obstacle because he's hungry for this. He has this hungry need. And I don't know about you, but I like stew. But stew is not really filling. Like, I mean, I can eat like some homemade chicken noodle soup. Oh, yes. I love that. But I'm always hungry like 20 minutes later and I go get another bowl. Stew is not fulfilling. Stew is not rewarding. It is less than. Give me a steak and a potato and a big salad. I'm a man. And so here's Esau and he's looking at this and it looks so good in this moment. And he's faced with this decision to make. I'll trade my birthright. I'll trade it for this. And the Bible says that he swore to Jacob that he would give him his birthright. Jacob gave him the stew and some bread. He ate it and he drank and he left. And then the last scripture in this passage, one of the most disheartening in all of the Bible, Esau despised his birthright. Esau despised his future. It's the justification of his guilt. He's justifying the decision that he made. Well, probably, I don't even know what that was going to be anyway. I mean, God, you really haven't done a whole lot for me as of late. So, I mean, how good could my future really be? How good could the plans that you have for me really be? Because this looks really good right now. And it's kind of tempting right now. And I could just fit in this really easily. And you know what? I could probably get back out really easily. But I don't know what that is yet. You might say you've got some plans for me, but the truth is, is I don't even know. And so I'm going to have this. And then in his guilt, he despises the plan of God for his life. Because that just makes him feel better about the decision that he made. It makes us feel better about the decisions that we've made. Well, you know what? We've tried marriage counseling before and man, I'd love to have a great marriage and people are saying it can be great and that's what it might look like in the distance. But the truth is, is we've tried counseling before. We can't figure it out. So this looks really good though. I don't know. I mean, the pastor talks about tithing and and, and how the Bible says that we'll be blessed and that God will provide. But when I've tithed before, I just haven't seen the results of my tithe. And so... I'll just keep my money now because I've got bills to pay. Ah, That relationship's not salvageable. This one looks better. You see, we have to be careful about what we're hungry for. Because our natural inclination is to fall into that. I don't care how godly you are. I don't care how spiritual you are. We are all human. And so we've got to recognize what that is. And I'll say it this way. Your hungry need, your stew, whatever that is, it will probably go with you for the rest of your life. 
And it will be a conscious decision that you must make on a daily basis to fight your flesh and to surrender yourself to the will of God and to whatever that great plan that he has for you. It's a discipline that has to be developed in the life of a believer. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. I want to read this again. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. If you read over it, you would skip over easily, I believe, the principle that we're to find out about here. It says this, Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Doesn't seem like a whole lot. Seems like a pretty reasonable request, actually. I mean, the disciples teach us to pray. That's a, teach me to pray. I want that too. But what is amazing about this scripture is that the disciples had been with Jesus for several years now. They had already been praying. They had no doubt witnessed all of the amazing miracles that he did. And I just kind of picture what's happening. I kind of picture that the disciples are, are, are with, with Jesus and Jesus is, is, is performing some miracle. And one of the disciples is like, did you, did you just see Jesus? He just, he just raised that man from the dead. Yeah, I saw it. And I want that. I want that. Did you, did you see Jesus? He just, he just spit in the mud and put it on that dude's eyes and he can see. Yeah, I... I want that. Do you see Jesus every morning? He gets up and prays. Yeah. I want that. But in your life, I want to read the Bible more. I want to pray more. I want to worship more. I want to worship away from church more. I want to serve more. I want to tithe more. Your want to is good. But it's not good enough. At some point in the context of your Christianity, your want to must become a need to. I need to pray. Because if I don't today, I'm going to screw this whole thing up. If I don't, I need to pray because I'm not settling for the stew. I need to read my Bible because the Bible is living. It's alive. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It will change me when it gets on the inside of me. I need to read my Bible. I need to worship God. I need to press in when I don't feel like it. I need to serve in my church. See, when you start having the attitude of a need to, all of a sudden your relationship with God changes. While this stew may still be here, you're stepping over it and you're pursuing God's plan for your life. The reality is, is that Some of us are tired. We're weary and well-doing. Some of us don't even want to do this anymore. Let's just be honest. How do you break through that? 
Isaiah chapter 40 gives us the answer to that. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 28 says, He gives strength to the weary. That He gives power to the weak. That even young men get tired and weary and they stumble and fall. You see, that's the pattern. The pattern of sin begins with weariness. Even young men get tired and weary and stumble and fall. But, that's a big but. Those who wait in the presence of God, their strength shall be renewed. Their strength shall rise up. Their strength shall grow. And they will mount up on the wings of eagles. And they will begin to soar. They will begin to run and not grow weary. They will begin to walk and not grow faint. What's this scripture talking about? Rising up on the wings of eagles? When you're in the presence of God, all of a sudden, God gives you vision. On the wings of an eagle, you have a new perspective. You see things differently in your life. You see that your life is not about you. It's not about living in the open country. It's not about you being skilled. It's about God's plan for you and you submitting to that plan. But you're going to remain tired as long as you remain out of the presence of God. Those who wait on the presence of God. Their strength will be renewed. It's a promise. And they will rise up on the wings of eagles. Let me tell you something. Some of you need a vision for your life. Husband, what is the vision for your family? Wife, what is the vision for your wife, for your for your family? Young person, what is the vision for your schooling? What is the vision for your work? What is the vision for your relationship with God? You see, if we don't have vision, the Bible says, we'll perish. And you get that vision in one place, one place only, and that is in the presence of God. This is less than. This obstacle, this hungry need, this emotion, it is less than, it is so unfulfilling, so unrewarding. It may smell good, it may taste good, it may look good. But this is so much better. You may not even be able to see it, smell it, taste it, feel it yet. But it's better. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? This morning, I believe that God wants to to do some work in our lives. We didn't come here just to listen to some nice words. We came here to change. That's why we got up out of bed this morning. Because we want to be different. Thanks for listening. For more, check out faithishere.org.